This week, Judge Rain confirms Purdue plan. Cedro plan moves forward while hearing on backstop adjourned. Brand licensor and manager Sequential Brands files Chapter 11 with RSA. Two stocking horse bids and $150 million dip requests in place. Puerto Rico House Speaker talks early stages of negotiations on plan of adjustment. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's deep dive, Julian Boulan from our Covenants team and Sean Daly from our America's Core Credit team discuss a recent opinion from the Murray Energy Bankruptcy, upholding a majority group of dip lenders' waiver of a minority dip lender's right to default interest. It's Friday, September 3rd. On Wednesday, Judge Robert Drain announced that he would confirm Purdue Pharma's 11th amended plan after the plan's non-consensual third-party release in favor of the debtor's shareholders, the Sackler family, and its affiliates is further qualified. Judge Drain directed the addition of language clarifying that the release only covers opioid-related claims tied to Purdue's conduct and said, I wish the plan had provided for more, but I will not jeopardize what the plan does provide for by denying confirmation. The debtors filed the 12th amended plan following the hearing, incorporating Judge Drain's comments. Judge Drain concluded that the settlement of estate claims and the release of third-party claims against the shareholders under the plan should be approved. Regarding the estate claim settlement, he concluded that although he believes the estate could, through litigation rather than settlement, recover an amount higher than the Sackler's $4.325 billion settlement payment, he did not believe such recoveries would be higher, quote, after taking into account the catastrophic effects on recoveries that would result from pursuing those claims and unraveling the plan's intricate settlements. As the claims to be released by objecting third parties, the judge concluded that the recoveries under the plan would, quote, exceed materially their recovery if the plan were not confirmed and the objectors pursued their claims independently. Judge Drain highlighted various litigation and collection risks that he said applied to third party and estate claims equally. The court's ruling marks the end of the confirmation proceedings for a plan that would transform the debtors into a public benefit company and devote the vast majority of Purdue's assets to abatement of the opioid crisis. At the conclusion of the hearing, the United States Attorney Ben Higgins informed the court that the UST intends to file a motion seeking a state pending appeal and would seek an expedited hearing. Shortly after the hearing's conclusion, the state of Washington and the District of Columbia each filed a notice of appeal of the judge's ruling to the district court attaching a rough transcript of the judge's oral ruling. Judge David Jones on Thursday approved the Seagill debtor's disclosure statement and set a plan confirmation hearing for October 26, while the motions to approve the backstop agreement and the SV party's motion for derivative standing were adjourned to facilitate further discussions. Shortly after taking the bench, Judge Jones indicated that he found it highly unlikely that he would be approving the backstop at the hearing if, quote, the allegations in SVP's papers have any basis, and he noted that there was a problem with the process. The debtors ultimately proposed continuing the backstop motion if the SVP standing motion were also continued, and Judge Jones agreed to adjourn the hearing, with a continued hearing on the backstop motion and SVP standing motion to be later set. Following the hearing, the SVP parties filed a notice of the party's withdrawal of their motion for leave, standing, and authority to conduct the marketing process for substantially all the assets solely of the North Atlantic Drilling Limited or NADL debtors. The confirmation hearing the debtors' first amended plan is set for October 26 at 12 p.m. Eastern. On Tuesday, Puerto Rico House Speaker Rafael Tatito Hernandez discussed the shape and scope of negotiations with the PROMESA Oversight Board regarding the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment and support for future-related legislation. Hernandez signaled that negotiations are still in early days following an initial meeting hosted by the Oversight Board last week with legislative and executive branch leaders saying that, quote, this is still in diapers, this process is just starting. 
The Commonwealth government has not endorsed the plan of adjustment given ongoing opposition in both the executive and legislative branches to public pension cuts, which are contemplated in agreement between the Oversight Board and the official retirees committee that is incorporated in the plan. The impasse between the Oversight Board and the government on the pension issue has clouded the prospects for passage of anticipated legislation to implement a plan of adjustment. Beyond the pension issue, Hernandez pointed to fiscal straitjackets contemplated in the plan as an important front for negotiations, adding that teacher pay raises, municipal financing, and protecting the legislature's prerogatives would also be in the mix at the bargaining table with the oversight board. Sequential Brands, which owns, manages, and licenses a large-scale and diversified portfolio of activewear and lifestyle brands across multiple sectors, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Tuesday in Delaware. The filing follows the debtor's entry into a restructuring support agreement with 100% of its pre-petition second lien term loan B lenders, two asset purchase agreements with two different stocking horse bidders, and an agreement on procedures for an auction process. The company's debt consists of $426 million of secured debt across two first lien and one second lien term loan. The proposed stocking horse agreements include Galaxy Universal, a subsidiary of Gainline Galaxy Holdings for the debtor's active division assets for total consideration of $333 million, and with Centrix Brands, the current licensee for the Joe's Jeans Brands, a stocking horse bidder for the debtor's Joe's Jeans Brands for $38.25 million in cash plus earnout payments. Sequential's press release said that it believes that each of its brands is well positioned for profitability under the stewardship of new owners. Pursuant to the term sheet attached to the RSA, the term B lenders will credit bid their pre-petition loan for remaining brands after the sale process. The RSA also includes a term B lender's support for each of the stocking horse bids in the auction process, plus a commitment for $150 million in dip financing, which would be used to pay down approximately $128 million owed under the pre-petition first-lien agreement and to finance the Chapter 11 cases and consummate the sales contemplated under the RSA and the stocking horse bids. Consenting lenders to the RSA consist of FSKKR Capital Corp., Dunlap Funding LLC, Darby Creep LLC, and Apollo Entities. At the beginning of Wednesday's first day hearing, Joshua Brody of Gibson Dunn, counsel for the debtors, announced the debtors had entered into a non-binding letter of intent with the Jessica Simpson family for the purchase of the debtors' 62.5% interest in the Jessica Simpson collection for a cash consideration of $65 million. Brody said that the debtors hoped to be in a position to file a stocking horse asset purchase agreement with the Simpson family shortly. Top Red Stories this week included Court Rules Against Endo and Vaso Strict Patent Dispute, Second Circuit rejects willful blindness standard for good faith defense in SIPA fraudulent conveyance actions, puts burden on defendants to show good faith. Missouri-Texas two-step litigation against Johnson & Johnson voluntarily dismissed by plaintiffs. Purdue Pharma reasonableness in the Viscount of Jersey, settling fraudulent transfer claims against the Sacklers and Purdue's plan. And now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning, all, and welcome to the long weekend. You'll be happy to know that the four days following that are relatively light. Monday, September 6th, is, of course, Labor Day, a hearkening back, as it were, to when America was an industrial and manufacturing power. Tuesday, September 7th, nothing of real consequence. Wednesday, September 8th, a hearing on Indo's motion for the appointment of a special master in its opioid-related litigation. Thursday, September 9th, earnings from JGL, GameStop, Hovnanian, and Academy Sports. And Friday, September 10th, again, nothing of consequence. And that's all from me. Back to New York. And next up, Julian Boulan from our Covenants team and Sean Daly from our America's Court Credit team discuss a recent opinion from the Murray Energy Bankruptcy, where a bankruptcy court upheld the waiver by a majority of dip lenders of a minority dip lender's right to default interest arising from a breach of a covenant only enforceable by the minority lender. I'm Sean Daly, Distressed at Legal Analyst. And today, Covenants Analyst Julian Balown and I are here to discuss a Covenants bankruptcy crossover in the Murray Energy bankruptcy. 
No, we don't mean the challenge of Murray's 2018 priming refinancing transactions. Instead, today we'll be looking at the smaller dispute between the debtors and dip philo lender Great American Capital Partners. Judge Johnny Hoffman Jr. recently denied Great American's request for entry of an order directing the debtors to pay approximately a million dollars of default interest, purportedly arising as a result of a breach of the dip credit agreement. Julian, before we get into the details, what's the main takeaway? Thanks, Sean. I think the big t- picture takeaway from this dispute in Murray is that creditors shouldn't expect bankruptcy judges to read consent rights into a contract that are not clearly reflected in the text, even if that reading is supported by market norms and expectations. Uh, the, the more specific covenants-related takeaway is that if a multilateral debt arrangement contains a financial covenant that's designed to protect only one class of creditor, then that class, especially if it's a minority class, needs to go to extra lengths to ensure that the consequences of uh, breaching that exclusive covenant can't be waived or modified without its consent. Great. Thanks. Let's dive into the details then. So to set, to set the stage, a few facts. The dip facility in the Murray Energy bankruptcy had two components. First, you had $350 million um, dip term loan, new money provided by an ad hoc group of super priority term lenders who also eventually wound up directing the credit bid for substantially all of the debtor's assets. So they have you know, major, major interest in seeing this case go off without a hitch. And then the second component of the dip was $90 million, uh, a roll-up of pre-petition philo debt held by Great American into dip philo loans. The debtors were, quote, in urgent need of liquidity when they filed for Chapter 11 in October 2019, stretching payment terms on vendors like any good distressed coal company, and the philo roll-up and partial use of proceeds from the new money component of the dip to pay off uh, some outstanding pre-petition ABL debt allowed the debtors to eliminate, quote, problematic borrowing base requirements. Past is prologue. So Great American, as dip philo lender, obtained one financial covenant solely for its benefit whereby the debtors agreed to keep their current assets above a certain minimum amount. So what happened? In May 2020, Great American filed a motion to enforce the dip order, alleging that the debtors had breached the current assets covenant. By the time the court could hold a hearing, the debtors had stipulated that the covenant had been breached. Even better, the debtors also stipulated that, quote, in consultation with the advisors to the dip term loan lenders, they had, quote, reevaluated the definition of current assets and what could fairly be reported under that test and started after 25 weekly reports of only including coal assets. Uh, they started reporting non-coal assets within the definition of current assets used for covenant compliance. And even after padding the definition, they still busted the covenant. As a result of the covenant breach, Great American declared an event of default. The notice of default sent to the debtors accelerated the dip file loans, declaring them due and immediately payable, and it demanded payment of default interest under Section 2.10b of the dip credit agreement. Write that down somewhere. We'll be back for Section 2.10b. And it's crucial to note the broader context. It was a foregone conclusion by May 2020 that the super priority term lenders slash dip term lenders credit bid was the heart of the plan that the debtors would ultimately seek confirmation of. But the company represented that it had been hit hard by coronavirus demand destruction. And in April, a major contract counterparty had filed a motion to convert the cases to Chapter 7, 
The debtors themselves started raising the prospect of liquidation and pleadings and adherings. And the confirmation hearing originally set for June was ultimately pushed back to late August as the debtors, among other things, continued to negotiate exit financing against this unfavorable backdrop. So not a great time to have to stump up 90 million bucks in cash to take out the dip file up. The parties agreed to try to work something out consensually. And Great American was probably feeling pretty good leading up to confirmation in late August. There was a statement in a supplement to the disclosure statement that said the debtors would have sufficient funding necessary to consummate the plan, uh, including, quote, the repayment of the dip filo claims, including default interest fees and expenses accruing as required by the dip documents in the final dip order in cash. Lo and behold, on September 5th, 2020, five days after Judge Hoffman confirmed the plan, the dip term lenders, as the requisite lenders holding greater than 50% of the exposure of all dip loans, executed a waiver by which they agreed to retroactively waive, quote, the operation of sections 2.10a and 2.10b of the dip credit agreement, uh, which governed the borrower's obligation to pay default and interest during the occurrence and continuation of any event of default. Section 2.10a relates to any default interest that may be owing to the dip term lenders, while section 2.10b, which we hit on earlier, relates to default interest owing to Great American. Uh, so the, the waiver here says, you know, we as the, the requisite lenders were waiving um, not only our entitlement to any default interest, but also Great American's entitlement to any default interest. Great American, of course, not excited about this development and comes back to the court with a handful of arguments about why it is in fact entitled to default interest. And in the court later says in its ruling that, yeah, listen, absent waiver, Great American 100% entitled to default interest under these facts. So Great American you know, says, hey, here's how you should read the dip credit agreement. Here's how you should read the dip order. Uh, also, just big picture, this would be an inequitable result. Judge Hoffman, in his opinion, goes to a specific section 10.5 of the dip credit agreement and rules for the debtors and dip term lenders based on the contract language. It's as, as simple as that. There's, as a general rule in section 10.5, the requisite lenders have the ability to waive a number of provisions in the credit agreement subject to an affected lender's consent exception that was applicable here. But that exception itself carves out section 2.10 doesn't say anything about subsection A or the one that Great American would care about, subsection B. So if this exception to the exception had only carved out 2.10A instead of just 2.10 generally, Great American would win, but alas, it does not. So Judge Hoffman then proceeds to shoot down Great American's other arguments by essentially saying, tough luck, I'm looking at the contract language. For instance, in its argument that as a matter of equity, it is entitled to default interest. Great American notes that it worked with the debtors to help facilitate confirmation of the plan with the understanding that it would be paid default interest. The debtors, again, stipulated that they had worked with counsel to the dip term lenders um, to, to essentially juice the current assets test is in, in an attempt to avoid failing the, the um, covenant compliance. And this, you know, the, the fact that the, uh, the requisite lenders sandbagged until the plan was approved to execute the default interest waiver months later. Um, so, you know, Great American just says, listen, this, come on, this, this would be completely inequitable. Uh, and Judge Hoffman says in the opinion, great, great line, quote, regardless of whether that is all true, 
it does not change the operative text to which great American agreed. So tough luck. Um, elsewhere in the opinion, this is kind of the refrain. The court's ruling today fosters predictability and upholds freedom of contract by enforcing the contractual language to which the parties agreed. Um, so Julian, you know, this is um, not, a, not a great result here for the dip philo lender. Could you maybe walk us through a, a little bit, some observations on, you know, just how did how do these provisions operate in credit agreements generally? Is this kind of a, a weird result? Is this how things go? Right. Th thanks, Sean. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, I think that Judge Hoffman's read of uh, the dip term lender's ability to make that default interest waiver on uh, uh, of basically a right that didn't belong to them uh, is, is consistent with what the contract actually says. And um, honestly, this isn't really an issue that we, we pay a lot of attention to in the pre-petition um, context um, in, in, in our review of leverage loan agreements. But um, you know, just, just sort of speaking generally about you know, how we see this, um, this, this sort of structure uh, in, in our analysis of debt documents, most well, many credit agreements, especially combined revolving and term loan agreements, um, um, you'll frequently see that a financial maintenance covenant is only for the benefit of the revolving lenders. Um, and what that means when something is only for the benefit of the revolving lenders, um, it, it's structured sort of the same way that you saw in Murray, which means that only the revolving lenders can declare a event of default for a breach of that financial covenant. And uh, typically, the, the term loan lenders won't be able to do anything with respect to that, um, to a breach of that financial covenant, unless, for example, the, the revolving lenders have sat on their hands for a period of like 90 days. Um, so in, in addition to, to sort of those types of provisions, you'd also typically expect to see restrictions on uh, the non-protected class or the term loan uh, class's ability to, uh, again, to, uh, to modify that financial covenant. So you wouldn't be able to have the term lenders come in and change a total net leverage covenant, for example, from you know, 3.5 times to, to 4.5 times uh, without the consent of the protected class. It's, it's actually, so you know, talking about now this issue of the ability of different groups of lenders to waive default interest, um, it's, it's pretty typical to see waivers of default interest um, excluded from the so-called sacred rights of creditors. Uh, and sacred rights refers to the list of credit agreement provisions that can't be amended without the consent of each affected lender. Um, this was the case in Murray. And if waivers of default interest are not included in this list of sacred rights, that usually means then that the waiver can be granted by a naked majority of the entire facility, um, which is how the dip term lenders in Murray's case were able to, uh, to, to make that waiver. In many cases, um, you know, like I said earlier, the protected class is going to hold a larger piece of the facility than the non-protected class, um, which means that they'd be, you know, they'd have a majority, a voting majority for purposes of amendments and waivers. But in in Murray, the dip philo lenders made up only about 20% of the entire facility. I think they had 90 million of roll-up uh, claims relative to about 350 million of of new money dip term loans. Uh, which which didn't give them enough of a voting block to um, veto the larger class of dip uh, term lenders uh, waiver of their default interest. So it's it's a really peculiar situation. And again, like I said, sort of at the beginning of this discussion, is that if you are a minority class, um, 
who is expecting to be protected by an exclusive financial covenant, um, you really you can't just you know sort of focus on the EOD provisions or the terms that are baked into that. You actually have to look at the entire agreement to see if there's anything flowing from a breach of that financial covenant um, over which you're going to want to lock down your consent rights. Because if if you if you don't have a majority position, there's lots of ways that um, that a bigger group can uh, can can make a hostile amendment um, against your against your interests. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, it's it's um, you know it doesn't it, just from a, a layman's perspective, it doesn't make a ton of sense, right? You think you build in this this particular specific protection to you, yet if you forget to sort of check, you know, the the back door on the remedy side, you can you can still sort of lose essentially the benefit of even having the the protection in the first place. Right. You know, it's um, it's and it's sort of counterintuitive that uh, the dip term lenders were were able to sort of go through with this. And um, and that counterintuitiveness was actually even, I think, acknowledged by Judge Hoffman. Um, but ultimately, he um, he favored um, sort of a strict interpretation of the text, which is something that I think more and more bankruptcy judges are doing. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, from this is just my personal opinion. I, I, I understand it. You've got sophisticated parties who know a lot about how these agreements are supposed to work. Um, and uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree with a judge being reluctant to use their equitable powers to sort of force a, a market norm or expectation into a document when, when it's just not there in the text. Yeah. Well, uh, Julian, thanks. Thanks for going through this one. Um, do you do you think? Looking ahead, maybe, um, you know, do you think this is this is going to change anything? Is this just kind of a, you know, a weird fact pattern? And even if you were a minority lender looking to protect yourself in the same circumstances in the future, do you think you'd have enough negotiating leverage to kind of get this protection that Great American was missing into the docks? You know, is, is there a is there is there anything to to use about this as a cautionary tale or, or looking forward, or do you do you think things will just kind of steam on the the way they are? I, I mean, this is this is a, a I don't really know, I, and I also don't know what the, the the dip credit agreement negotiations looked like. You know, Great American very well may have tried to alter that section of the sacred rights to make sure that it didn't the the carve out didn't only apply to section two point ten. And maybe they they wanted it to focus on 2.10a and not their 2.10b, uh, and they may have just lost because they're you know a minority uh, roll up dip claimant um, uh, compared to you know the much larger new money class. Um, I, I do think that it's possible though that folks will start paying closer attention to that carve out for default interest that's included in the sacred rights section. I know that that I'll be. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks very much uh, for walking, walking us through that one. Uh, and until next time. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great Labor Day weekend and see you next Friday.